is like when we have milestone events, Ed, and this one is actually a milestone event. We've made it to episode 25 of the Development Hell podcast. Yeah, it's pretty incredible, huh? A quarter century of us uh, yapping and talking about whatever the hell we wanted to talk about. And you know, when I think back, when did we start this? Like January of this year? So it's been January, February. I actually can't Something remember. Like that. I don't want to cheat and I don't want to cheat actually, and go back and look at the uh, at the archives. But I think um, I think we recorded something in 2011 like the first one was in december or something okay well either way i mean i think that's pretty impressive that we're basically speaking every other week um which i think is which Mm -hmm. is impressive in itself i think yeah not too shabby right um i think it's gone pretty okay so far um and uh i think it helps that we don't talk to each other at all outside of this well, I mean, we do chat occasionally on IM, but but that's usually just we throw insults at each other and and, yes. and derogatory uh, nerd words thrown. Um, Absolutely. So yeah, for the most part, by staying the fuck away from each other, we always have something interesting to talk about. Right. Yep. So before we go any further, though, speaking of talking, let's thank our wonderful sponsors at Engine Yard. Thank you, Yay. Elizabeth, for uh, getting us hooked up with Engine Yard. Engine Yard, the trailblazers of platform as a service. Also, a big shout out to our friends at Orchestra.io. If you're into PHP, you want to run your stuff on a platform as a service provider with an awesome sandbox run by people who know what the hell they're doing about both the language and on the infrastructure side, please check out Engine Yard and Orchestra.io. Good yeah. folks. Good folks there. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, and um, the Wonder Network. Uh, oh, yes, and the Wonder are... Network is always providing the uh, bandwidth for our awesome live stream that the folks in IRC um, are watching. Wave hi to IRC, Ed. Hi, guys. Yay! And then they are, uh, Wonder Network has a cool product they've developed called. Um, I think it's the Where's It Up API. Correct. Yes, it. you can. That's right. If you uh, if you run a distributed app, or even you're just interested, uh, I think especially if you're dealing with geolocation and stuff like that, you want to make sure that hey, can my peeps in Kazakhstan see my application right now? You can use the Wonder Network's Where's It Up API to give you an idea. And as always, right. I, I told Paul Reinheimer this when I saw him um, in person at True North PHP. Dude is just knocking it out of the park with his little side project. And I and yeah. I look forward to the day when it is no longer his side project, and that the Wonder Network is his full time gig. Yeah, he needs to quit trying to like cure cancer. <laughs> right, cure cancer and keep his girlfriend happy by being gainfully employed. Yeah, exactly. Whatever stupid stuff is. So, uh, but, so yeah. yeah. So tonight, Ed, it's just you and me talking shit. No, uh, no guest. And don't get me wrong, I like having guests on, but it actually has been a while since it was just you and me talking. It has been, and I sort of, I'm sort of anxious to get back to just talking about code a little bit too. You know what I mean? Um, I think we've been talking about like community stuff a lot and things of that nature, and the, of course, those are very important things to do. But I'm, I'm sort of anxious just to sit down and talk about code and things that we're working on and stuff like that. So, All right, so uh, we have one yeah. last little bit of community stuff that we want oh, to talk yeah, about that, that we didn't that we didn't get to in the last podcast. Is we wanted to talk briefly about the conference that you uh, stiffed me on in order to right. uh, to go. So that's Code Connects in uh, fabulous Indianapolis, uh, Indianapolis, Indiana. So. Uh, yeah. Uh, how was it, Ed? Tell me a bit about what happened when you were there. Uh, all sorts of bad things. Uh, no, it actually went uh, really well. I thought um, so. It, uh, gosh, it's been so long now. I almost what happened. I can't remember. So it was a it was a small conference that um, we were in a. Uh, how would you just, it was a, it, there was a, a bunch of meeting space and stuff, but it was attached to an old, 
their hotel in uh, downtown Indianapolis, but not right in the downtown downtown, sort of around this place called Fountain Square. And um, I'd actually been around there before. I hadn't realized it before because I'd seen a couple shows that it, like there was a little bar just like on the same block, like two places down from this place. And uh, uh, it has like a barbecue restaurant kind of attached to it. <clears throat> and um, it was a really cool venue. Um, and uh, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was, it was very small. And uh, some of that was, that was a little bit of a, of a downer to some extent because uh, you want, it to you know you always if you want your conference to be successful you want to have so many people want to go that you you know you can't fit them in right um and i you know partly uh i i felt some investment in it because um not just because i was speaking but also because it was happening sort of in my backyard like it's it's literally just a one hour drive from where i am to get there and so i you know i've been sort of trying to uh locally get more stuff going on and talking about uh open source and programming stuff and things like that and so i I, you know i was i i I felt like that stuff wasn't happening enough around here and i really kind of wanted to see it happen more so it was a little bit of a little bit of a worry uh in that sense but you know the the conference itself turned out really great um I think there were a couple things that were interesting is first it was a just a single track the whole day and um or actually both days it was two days and so being a single track that was interesting because that means that you weren't sort of running in and out of rooms and 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 uh you know picking which thing you were more interested in and stuff like that like everybody was there for each thing and it sort of became i guess you might say a little more holistic like there are a lot of times like you know, a talk would happen and, you know, the, the speaker would reference something somebody else had spoken about a little bit ago. Um, and, uh, I thought that was pretty cool. And then the, uh, the second thing is it had a lot of, uh, there was a lot of discussion about, um, stuff that wasn't like non-technical topics. And there's a bunch of words for that, that I don't, that are really hard to, uh, take seriously like um like it's soft skills or people skills or th- career building or things like that and everything every all of those things sound um of course terrible um but they actually turned out to be really great and while i'm coming up with this uh or while i'm talking about this i'm going to try to go look it up um and remember <laughs> what some of the talks were because it's been a little bit but i think that was um you know, there were a lot of just really good things in there. Um, let's see here. Uh, getting started and contributing to open source. That was a really good talk. Um, uh, mentoring developers. Liz Smith did a really good talk on, on how to, how to be, uh, an effective and, and, uh, uh, friendly, uh, mentor to, uh, people who are interested in learning how to code. Um, let's stop for a second. Just talk a bit about the mentoring stuff because, um, Okay. Liz Smith's talk. Well, her talk that she gave at um, Lone Star PHP, she gave a very similar mm-hmm. one um, right. on the mentoring stuff. And that basically spurred me on to do the mentoring thing that I'm doing these days with all the testing stuff, talking to three different developers who are at three different stages in their careers, dealing with three very um, different environments. Mm-hmm. And I think the whole idea of 
formalized mentoring is something that could really be of benefit to developers as a whole. Yeah. So I have this weird thing where maybe it's not that weird. I'm deeply cynical and suspicious of like when stuff like that gets too formal, like my natural reaction to that is it sounds like sort of like a life coach. And I like that word maybe sums up better. If you're cynical about that, that's how I feel about stuff. And it's like, it feels weird to me when it becomes more formalized, but I think I, it really shouldn't because I think that um, just finding people, you know, to me, and I guess one of the things that I've, I've liked about participating in open source so much, and I think the PHP community in particular, is that there, generally there's a, a, a good sense of sharing and, and taking time to help folks and things like that. I, and I really appreciate that. Um, and I wonder I like- if, uh, at, for one of our future mm-hmm. episodes, we should drag one of my um, mentees or apprentices or indentured servants or whatever you want to call them right. on onto one of the episodes just to give just to hear their side of things to see how they think the whole um, mentoring and mentee experience has been for them. Because I I have found what it is forcing me to do is. Uh, stop taking things for granted. Actually think about what I'm doing in terms of testing or just overall as a developer to try to see if I do this thing, how am I going to go about explaining this to someone who does not have the exact same set of skills and knowledge about that topic that I do? I think in a lot of cases that makes you a better developer. Um, like you as, as as the mentor or in, in that kind of role, um, because I think it makes you think a lot about like what you said about like taking things for granted that aren't necessarily you know what well why is it why do you do that why is that the case right um and i think sometimes it helps us it, or, or or it forces you to make sure that you understand you have a really clear understanding of why things work the way they do and i think it's easy to sort of not push yourself and just get to the point where it's like, well, I tweak around with it until it works, and then it kind of, you know, pass aside. And uh, you just sort of learn that it kind of becomes uh, like that's a rote thing to do. That's, that's something you've just sort of memorized this pattern and you toss it out, but you don't really necessarily understand why that is. And I, you know, I was reading something somebody posted about, uh, I think it was on Twitter about uh, that you never like realize how well you really understand something until you have to explain it to somebody else (laughs) Um, sure for sure and uh i know i've had that experience like in the middle of giving presentations before (laughs) where i've uh been like wait you know what i really don't understand exactly why it's this way like i've gotten over there and talked about topics and i'm like wait a minute i'm not you know and that's always frustrating and a little embarrassing when you get up there and you realize that you're either your understanding is not you know, you know, a hundred percent, or maybe, you know, you get asked a question that you can't answer. Right. Um, I've had that happen to me a couple times and, uh, which I, I don't think is a bad thing. I think it's a good thing, but it is a little, it, it sort of, uh, makes you realize, well, maybe I, maybe I don't have as good a grasp on this as I should. And, uh, or as I, as I could, you know, uh, and that's, uh, that's an important thing. So I, I, I so I should say, I really, enjoy uh, like i guess what you say is i I, yeah i'd use the word mentoring i really enjoy doing that 
I really like being able to help people that way. And I like it when people are willing to do that for me because I certainly need plenty of help. But I, uh, at the same time, I, I, maybe I get weird about it when I feel like it's, that relationship becomes less of an equals kind of relationship. And, but the thing is I, I my experience with it, the formal relationships are, is, is, is not great. Right. Right. I, I it, or my experience, I should say is not, is not extensive at all. It's very, very small. It's always for me has always been very, very casual and not, not, uh, not formalized to any extent. So my, I, I, I don't know how much I could really speak about that. Um, I felt like what Elizabeth Smith talked about, was uh was not necessarily super formal it was maybe just she has a php mentoring.com is that it i think i think uh yeah that's um, the one yeah or it might be dot oh, org yeah. but either way i think probably if you just type yeah. in php mentoring you'll find the site right up at the top let me just type that in hey look at that's dot org and uh so that's uh that's formalized to some extent in that it sort of says if you're interested in mentoring, add yourself to this list. And if you're interested in being mentored, you know, you can sign up for it. And there's some sort of guidelines or how to's and things like that. And, you know, why does this work? But it's not, um, all of that seems fairly reasonable to me. Right. Um, and, and it, it definitely is sort of a relationship of, of equals in there where you're saying, well, I want to learn more about this. And people who are like, well, I would enjoy, you know, talking about it and helping folks. So in that sense, I think it's very much in the spirit of other other good open source experiences I've had. Yeah, I mean, I, I am thoroughly enjoying the opportunity to um, um, help pass it forward and and find a way to kind of pay pay back for it. Everybody took time to explain things to me. Uh, I have no problem being a conduit to pass that knowledge on the other. So I derailed you a little bit. So keep That's talking okay. a little bit more about coconut. There's something interesting you talk about being single track. Yeah. I, I think I saw on Twitter a while ago. I don't remember who said it, but they said uh, inside every multi-track conference is a single track conference looking to break out. Yeah. Uh, and I always look at it and think that uh, – they kind of work across purposes. If you have an event, you want to get as many people as possible to come out. And so in my mind, it seems the best way to get lots of people to come out is to have multiple tracks, multiple opportunities for people to sit in a space and interact with a speaker. But when you go to the, so that's multiple track, which is the way most technology conferences are. But if when you go to a single track, then I think it gives a conference a, uh, a totally different vibe, and I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure um, how. Uh, like I think about True North as multi-track. Could could I make it work um, single track? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it just seems like the experience is. It, it's almost like when it's single track. It's almost like you know, like you're in school and you're yeah. just sitting there in the same room, and just the teachers are coming in, and it's a, a slightly different topic, but in many ways. Uh, you're still stuck in the stuck in the same place. I don't know. Like, like from your experiences, which which types have you preferred? I mean, have you been to a lot of single track versus multi track? Because I know the Brooklyn Beta ones are all single track. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, those are single track, and I've been to a couple other ones. And, and I have to admit, I've generally found that uh, the single track ones I've been to, I felt like the quality was less variant. Um, and I think I generally was able to 
focus and enjoy the talks more. I, I think the multi-track stuff, oftentimes, it ends up being a little distracting. And there's a tendency, I th- maybe it's just because you're moving around a lot. I think there's a tendency to sometimes just park yourself in a room and you might be sitting there and you're only kind of half listening, but you're also doing other stuff. I think that's something that happens at a lot, a lot of talks at conferences. And, uh, and I think that's something that, uh, I'd almost discourage. Like, I mean, if this is a little bit off, but sometimes I actually think it would be better if most conferences didn't have Wi-Fi or things like that. Um, because I, I think it, I think it would really be better for the most part if people got rid of their laptops. Um, unless it, this was, unless it was like a training thing where you're, you, you're really, you know, there to, to code along with folks. Um, but generally I sort of found that I think I focused better at the single track talks that I, I was at. I felt like I tended to get more out of those talks. Um, they, you know, so my experience has generally been good with those. Um, I'm sure there are bad ones the, where you get ones where it's like, boy, I'm stuck in this talk with, that I just don't care about. Right. Um, and it, it's harder to like, just take off and say, Oh, this sucks. Right. You know, and you, you walk out in the middle and everybody sees you and stuff like that. Uh, so people at IRC are getting, uh, getting punchy here. So, um, yeah, I, 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 I like the, I like the single track stuff that I've done. Um, you know, Code Connects was a little different in that sense too, maybe because nobody, and maybe it was because of the size. It felt like, you know, the speakers were really just part of the audience. And so somebody would get up and sort of take their turn to speak, but it very much, it felt really organic and felt like a really small, just group of folks kind of sharing different stuff with each other. And so that's a little bit different than, you know, I've gone, you know, Brooklyn beta is often, uh, it, it's it's less like that, you know. At Brooklyn Beta, sometimes you'll get guys who are, you know, they might not even really be attending the conference. They might just speak, you know. Um, and there, but I mean, there's also folks who attend the conference. But some of the sort of like more famous people, um, they're just coming in to talk and and they take off, right? Um, and uh, this was this felt very different. This felt very. Um, it's like the difference between if you go to see a show and there's a big stage and you go to see a show and everybody's it's flat and they're all on the same floor, right? You see a show in somebody's basement and, and the people who are playing in front of you, you know, 10 minutes before, maybe we're standing next to you and watching the band before you. Right. And, uh, it was more of that vibe, right? Um, that was definitely what I got out of that. So I, I, you know, I like that. I like that experience a lot. And that was in a sense that probably a positive about not having a ton of people was that it felt very much like, uh, everybody was on the same level. And I really liked that. Um, let's see. I, you know, one of the things about code connects, I think it was interesting is that, um, it was put on by PHP women and maybe not surprising, but it, let me count up here. I think half the speakers were women, maybe more than half. It divides down the, you know. Um, and that did not seem, it was, you know, that wasn't brought up as like a huge point. It just was the way it was. And I thought that was cool, right? Um, but 
we had you know Jennifer Marsman uh, from Microsoft, Shuri Cabal, uh, who I, she works for Mozilla, uh, Laura Thompson from Mozilla, uh, Susan Bond, who I think is a self-employed. Um, Laura is incredibly funny because her husband is super funny as well. Those two of them, yes. those two of them, when they gang up you on Twitter, it's a whole new level of fun. Oh yeah, totally. Uh, those Luke, guys are uh, Luke stalks me on Twitter and is always there with a very acerbic uh, joke in, respo- in response to something that I said. Because I like yep. him because he looks like Wolverine. Have you seen he his, does with those have you chops, seen his yeah. uh, Twitter, his avatar? He's got the Wolverine sideburns. Uh, oh, he totally does now. It's, it's great. Um, Laura Beth Denker, who I think you know pretty well, was yes. there speaking. Um, so, you know, I think we got... That was really cool. Um, I... Uh, and there were some things, there were some topics that you don't sort of talk about as much about, uh, you know, um, Susan Bond talked about like the art of self-sourcing she talked about, but she was kind of talking about having trust in yourself and, and, and doing, uh, uh, interesting, trusting sort of your intuition, she said, and it's sort of a, sort of a, a vague notion, but I, I think she, uh, she, uh, you should listen to her talk because she does a much better job explaining it than I can. But, uh, it was really good. Um, there was childcare on, on site, which was, uh, is notable. I haven't run into many conferences that have that, but I thought that was really cool. Um, so yeah, I really, I really enjoyed this conference. Um, I think it, uh, it, I was bummed that not that more people didn't come. And I think that, to uh, to get uh, a little little uh, fatherly for a second, I think if you want cool things to happen in your area, you have to support it when people try to do them. And like, it's important to go out and be there and and be and participate and support it, even because just because of the fact that it doesn't happen that often even if it's not exactly what you would do or, but it, it, things don't happen at all. If, if like the initial things aren't successful. Right. And it's, you know, it's funny. I use that metaphor about going to see a band and it, it's a little bit like that. Like if you want to support people doing indie, you know, you know, music in your area or whatever, people actually have to come out and see it. If nobody does that, or they kind of think, Oh, that's a cool idea. But they never actually leave the house and like, uh, you know, I'm, I got this thing going on or something. If you don't go out and do it, then it's not going to happen. And, and it's not going to, you know, it's not going to be there. And so that was kind of a bummer, right? I wanted to see more people, especially more local people come out. Um, and, uh, but you know, there were some, <laughs> that I badgered, uh, but uh, not as many as I would have liked. But uh, you know, it is what it is. You can't make people do stuff. So, uh, uh, but I, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I got out of this conference. I, I hadn't felt as excited about doing stuff and 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 um, building things and interacting with people. Um, I hadn't had that feeling of excitement coming away from a conference for a while, and I got that here, and that was probably one of the the coolest things for me was that feeling of inspiration and uh i'm i'm jaded about conferences now you know because i've spoken at a few and uh, uh for a few years now and uh this yeah i definitely came away from this uh feeling energized and that was really cool awesome so yeah i mean small conferences they have they also have a different vibe to them as well i would imagine it would be very weird to have uh a multi-track conference with only like 
40 people there. It would just feel like right. you're totally uh, wasting your time. You know what I mean? Like you put all this effort into it and then only 40 souls come out to hear your multi-track conference. Well, yeah. And then what is it going to be like? You know, 10 people in each one. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I, so yeah. Okay. So, I mean, it sounds like you had a good time at CoConnex and hopefully um, they get their act together and have it again in uh, 2013. I hope so too. the world doesn't end. Yes. Which I don't, which I don't think it will. Um, cause yeah, it's already, probably, it's already uh, the apocalypse in Australia by now. So we haven't heard any reports of shit blowing up. So we should be okay. Then again, we haven't heard anything at all. <laughs> Okay, so let's talk about the next topic on our awesome list where I wanted to talk about something that I've seen pop up in the last little bit. That yeah. uh, There have been a few blog posts and some tweets that are kind of a pushback on your concept of micro-frameworks and low numbers of dependencies on your code. So right. this is something I wanted to talk to you about. Um, God damn it, my cat just opened the door to my office. That son of a bitch. He's in the litter box and he's like giving me the stink eye. Oh, that's, that's good. All right. Anyway. <laughs> that's, that's nice you record um, by the litter box. Where was I? Oh, yeah. Talking about microframework. So one, yeah. one of the things that I saw, which I sounded kind of weird to me, um, weird explanation is that people are, I think people who prefer full stack solutions are pushing back at the idea of the microframework uh, collections of libraries, um, the focus on dependencies. And so some of the weirdness I've seen is like, oh, this is a trend moving back to no, to the idea of uh, not invented here, where people are, are like, I don't want any dependencies in my code. And also people talking about... Um, uh, I'm trying to think now because I don't want to cheat and look it up online. But just this idea that somehow promoting the idea of interconnected uh, of libraries of loosely coupled code is is bad. Yeah, I don't know why. Um, and here here's the thing that I find confusing about that. The thing that most strongly inspired me to write about it and sort of, you know, got me thinking this way, was the fact that it was so hard to um, to find a solution that would fit into my existing code base that I, and that I would sometimes end up writing my own stuff. I, in fact, don't want to write my own code. I would much rather there was an existing thing that I could drop in and did what I wanted. Um, so I don't, it really, to me, has nothing to do with this not invented here idea. I don't want to write my own code. I just want code that doesn't introduce lots of additional responsibilities in for me and does exactly what I want and, you know, doesn't have other stuff I don't want. Because I, 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 what I see, I mean, some people have said that um, if you're all uptight about uh, dependencies and code being dragged along with the thing that you're trying to use, then clearly they're not familiar with using, um, say, RubyGems or um, or the Node Package Manager, where that that whole idea of you install a package and then all its dependencies get installed along with it. Um, when you're using something like RubyGems or NPM, those things are right in your face. You see them. You see them as soon as you go to install them, and I yep. and I, I think that 
Um, I, I'm like you. I don't want to write my own shit. I would much rather have that somebody else took the time to solve a problem. And right, that, right. And chances are my particular problem probably is a, like a 99% fit to yep. the problem that they had. And I am willing to slog through and, and analyze code and, and look at it and say, oh, okay, now I know how to extend this thing to get it to do the thing that I need to do. So I wonder if part of the issue is that there are some people who are, I'm trying to think of the right word, willfully ignorant. They don't want to know all the stuff that gets dragged along when they want to use something. I mean, I understand as part of your original manifesto, right. the idea that less code is better. And I agree with that. Less mm-hmm. code you write is better means also less code to test, mm-hmm. less code to maintain. So, right. so you do want to make sure that whatever you're doing, you're getting it done with the least amount of code possible. But I think that if you do need to add other pieces in to support a particular library that you're trying to use, I would much rather be shown that right at the time I make the decision to include that in my application. Like, you know, like one of these things with Composer, if you install stuff via Composer, right. it should be showing you all the things that it's going to install. If you install mm-hmm. stuff with Ruby Gems, <coughs> excuse me, they'll show you everything. Same yep. with NPM. When you install a package, it says, oh, hey, and here's all the other dependencies that I'm installing. Now, you can choose after the fact to back out of that and it'll remove everything for you but i think that's the key thing when you install a library there needs to be something in place that shows you hey if you're going to use this here's all the other stuff that is going to be installed because this library happens to depend happens to depend upon these other ones yeah um yes there it's not a it's not i've i've never said you shouldn't bring in code from outside the only thing I said is you have to be aware of what you're bringing in and you have to understand that you're taking responsibility for all the code that your app is using. And uh, so I, you, sometimes you take on stuff because that's the best solution for you in this situation. Um, you know, uh, you would take on like what's a, a good example would be something like uh, what the hell is that search thing that we use? Um Elasticsearch? Like yeah, we use Elasticsearch a lot. And uh, are we? it's like, are you excited about having to install JVM on there now? No, I'm not, <laughs> right? But this tool, and then all the other stuff that you know goes along with that, not just JVM, but all this, you know, all the other code that this relies on. But it makes it so much easier to do, you know, full text searching that... It's you can. It's worth all that. It's worth the pain of maintaining it because it makes it so much easier to do this stuff that you want to do, right? Um, so dependencies are a fact of life. Uh, the i the, I think the idea is that you make a conscious decision about accepting dependencies and the responsibility that they bring into your app code into your application as opposed to ignoring them and not being aware of what you're introducing into your application and i i guess the the thing why i want simple modular libraries is i oftentimes and i keep, i ran into this over and over with php also the fact that php really i guess composer is sort of getting there but doesn't have a certainly a a super mature uh, good package manager and you know a, a a concept yet that you know building libraries as opposed to full stack frameworks is is valuable. Um, that 
it, I frequently, ha- you know, I might have an application and I say, you know what, I really want, I need a library that's going to do something like that, that's going to do this task for me. Like, I don't know, let's just say parsing RSS feeds, right? And that's all I want to do because I need to solve this problem and I don't want to write my own RSS parser or something like that for it, right? Well, what I'd like to do is to just, like, if I want to go, um, like, if I want to put a, a, a round window in my house, I don't want to have to have another house attached to that round window at the same time. Uh, I, you <laughs> wow, know, that's and, actually and, a really terrible <laughs> metaphor, but it's I a get, terrible metaphor, I but yeah, it, it's like, there's a bunch of other crap attached to it. Right. And I don't want that stuff. And I, and the second thing is that a lot of times with these things, it's not just the case that there's a lot of say, you know, dependencies on it. But there's the notion that in in most full stack frameworks, you have to learn how those systems work and how the that full stack framework works before you can start using it. So there's this additional learning curve that makes it less likely that you're going to adopt it and use it. Um, that's my problem. I, you know, the dependency stuff is there, absolutely. And I think that's something you have to be aware of. But I am fully willing to take on dependencies if it means that I will be doing significantly less work. That is not a problem for me. Um, I mean, you have to weigh that stuff. Is there a performance hit? And is it, you know, this or that, whatever, right? How well is this code maintained and all that stuff? And can you trust it? Does it come from a good source? So there's all that stuff, right? But I don't want to do more work and I, I don't want to write my own. Yeah, I don't want to write my own stuff. Absolutely not. The problem is that I, I don't want to have to, I want to get locked into a system that means I have to, I learn just how that system works. And then um, when I, if I find that it doesn't cover something that I want to do, not only is it the case that I might say, have to write my own library for it, but I have to write a library that's going to, in, that's going to work with this whole existing framework. Um, and it's only, it, it might only work with that. I, I, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't get the idea. I, you know, I, I have to stop for a second because I'm just babbling. <laughs> okay. Well, let me, let me add something else to the discussion here. Yeah. too. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Paul motherfucking Jones, who we both yeah. know, uh, has been working extremely hard on the aura framework and the big deal about aura. Actually, yeah. probably framework is probably, or is probably the mo- the least framework like framework, and I'm doing air quotes, which of course you cannot see, right. um, out there for PHP. And I say that because Paul and um, uh, and his uh, partner over in India, Harry, and some of the other guys who are working on it, have gone to extreme lengths to have every single individual um, component in Aura be standalone, that they're all dependency-free in terms of one component does not depend on another component in the collection in order to work. Right. Now, the reason Paul has explained to numerous people who clearly don't want to listen, but has explained this numerous times and explained it to me very well, was that the, the reason they chose to do that was because he, when he built Solar, which was the predecessor, was working extremely hard to try to have it so that if there was just one little component within his collection or framework or whatever label you want to slap on that you wanted to use, it should be super simple 
to pull that bad boy out and use it somewhere else. So, right. so Aura goes to ridiculous lengths to make sure that nothing that it does depends on other components. And so I saw something interesting where Paul was talking about um, a few uh, blog posts or people are kind of not, not, not bad-mouthing them, but more like making some criticisms of his of his decisions, his architectural decisions, where it appears to me at first glance, without going through the code base, that someone has pointed out that there's a few sections where you are kind of doing some duplication. That in the process of trying to create complete standalone components, you're duplicating code. So what do you think about that where you start duplicating code to increase the likelihood that 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 component can be reused. Well, I I guess the first thing I'd say is that in my feeling, uh, duplicating code gives me a very bad feeling. Um, I it, that just doesn't uh, work well for me, and I've all I, it just always ends up for me when I'm creating applications that it always ends up that I now end up having to write the same thing in two places whenever I make a change. And I will inevitably have to change the code. So that means I have to change it here and there, you know. Um, You know, I just came across this, like, the other day um, in some JavaScript, some front-end stuff in a a large-ish backbone application that I'm working on. And the way I solve it in JavaScript is, and it's easier is because I can just compose stuff from different objects. So I can just say, well, just pull in that object and I'm just going to cop. I just say, okay, the same, uh, function over here. I'm just going to say, Oh, just call this prototype. Just, and even just assign it. I could just say, you know, foo equals the, you know, this class prototype foo or whatever. So I can just compose stuff that way. I don't have to use like the whole inheritance model for that. Um, and uh Could you flash in your computer science skills i know right these are just words i've heard uh, i really don't know anything about it, but, you do know this stuff uh, slightly um so you cannot effectively as far as i can figure out do composition in php or at least in any way that is performant maybe um, maybe in php 6 yeah maybe <laughs> <laughs> um i it's so as, and that's one of the things I'm kind of, you know, as I've explored other stuff, that's one of the things I'm not a fan of in PHP is its, is its general object model and, and that it lacks um, flexibility to do things that are not sort of very traditional classical inheritance stuff. Um, I guess you could do stuff like that with traits, maybe, um, or something of that nature. But the short thing is that, you know, I'm real pragmatic and I probably... W- I I probably would have avoided copying code just because I felt like that was going to introduce more problems down the road in terms of maintenance of the framework. But I also see that I tend to write end user. I tend to write not well, yeah, end user. I tend to write application code, not necessarily library slash you know module or framework code. Right? Um, I've done more. Uh, end user or you know end application stuff like this is the finished product and not something i'm going to base something else on and so the needs uh in terms of a module that other people will be using and you're putting out there that people can choose to say i'm just going to use this basis or you know that um 
that might be different. Uh, my tendency would be I would probably still avoid it. I would probably just say, uh, I probably would have packaged it up and said, "Here's the you know this thing is simply a you know an extension of this other component, and you need the other component to use it." Um, and I don't, you know, that's personally what I would have done, but, uh, Paul is a really smart dude <laughs> and, uh, he sure, he knows way more about computer science than I do. And, uh, I would trust that he has good reasons to do that. Um, the, whether or not you value like what he's valuing there, I'm not sure, but, I can certainly see cases where that would be valuable for people and they can choose and say, I just need this component and I'm just going to grab that whole thing. Uh, so, you know, I, I, my tendency would be is like I said, I don't have a problem with dependencies as long as you know what you're getting into and you you take on responsibility for your entire code base. Um, and if you're cool with doing that, I, I, you know, that's fine. So I would have been happy to take on the, the Aura stuff and said, well, if I need this thing, I don't mind inheriting another piece. Um, but, you know, he surely has imagined use cases where that comes up and had a reason for doing that. So that's fine. All you right, know. So let, let's move off of the sadness that is PHP. <laughs> Uh, and talk about the last thing we had on our list of things to discuss, which is uh, shifting over to the JavaScript side of things. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. DOM performance. This is something that we talked about a little bit, and I think you talked about on Twitter a couple of days ago, I think. Yeah. Um, mainly in terms of the of about um, virtual scrolling, the, the trend to have um, infinite scroll. Yeah. And so, and so some of the challenges when you build things like that. And is, is that an accurate thing that we're going to talk about? Cause you know, yeah. me, me and JavaScript, yep. I'm just like looking at it and saying, okay, this is something I need to learn. And infinite right. scroll sounds like something I really want to deal with um, later as opposed to now. So let's, let's talk about this a little bit. Yeah. So the problem you get into is, and this is, you know, there was a lot of, there's a lot of discussion related to this about, um, you know, there's a lot of excitement as is a HTML five, uh, and which I guess really is a name for a com- combination of uh, uh, markup and JavaScript and CSS stuff um, as an application platform, as opposed to just saying like a page platform. Right. Um, and uh, I think that a lot of people and a lot of, you know, pundits and people who do business intelligence and other complete horseshit like that, um, you know, talked were concerned when Facebook, they, you know, that they were a big proponent of HTML as an application platform and ended up uh, ditching it and um, on their iOS app. And I'm not sure about Android, but I assume they did this too. Uh, ditching it and using the native UI toolkits um, that come, you know, the, the UI toolkits that come with the, touch stuff in coco whatever that's called in on ios and things like that um so and there were there was much wailing and gnashing of teeth because they felt like you know the the one of this, this big application win that proponents and html5 developers had uh had gone back to the dark side and how awful that was and stuff like that um well, Facebook, you know, when I was messing around with the Facebook application, I would notice it getting slowing, like slowing down as you scrolled through stuff. 
it wasn't really surprising to me that it did that because I ran into the exact same problems when I did Spaz on um, uh, on desktop, uh, but way more so on the Palm Pre and under WebOS. Um, the issue that you have is when you have stuff where you you have a an infinite potentially amount of data and um, it's not necessarily something that you would just easily paginate where somebody's going to, where it's, it makes sense to sort of, you know, flip through pages of stuff. Uh, but you have, which is, is more and more prevalent in websites and on mobile applications too, where you basically have an infinitely long list of stuff to scroll through. And you might eventually hit the bottom of it, but it can be, uh, you know, that, that can kind of be reasonable. What you ha- with social networks, you have typically you have to think of it as a completely uncapped source of data. And if you have this big stream and that thing is just growing and growing and growing and there's no beginning and end to it effectively, there might be a beginning, which is right now, but you could just scroll back forever. And what if this person just posts like 10,000 things a day and what have you, there's, you're not going to, there's eventually that, that data doesn't have a ceiling on it, right? It doesn't have a cap on it. And so there's a couple things that you can do. You, uh, well, here's the second thing: is the data structure is one thing, and and you know your your model as it was in inside the, and, you know inside your JavaScript engine, that actually isn't a huge problem for the browser. It can handle stuff uh, like pretty large data structures without an issue. Um, the problem becomes with representing that in the DOM as HTML. That it has a really big problem with. Um, I was just doing some experiments with it tonight where I was just taking a really, because I was interested in exploring this and uh, on my own and seeing how the seeing I wanted to try to build a solution myself to understand how uh, some of these solutions work. There's some components out there to try to solve this, but I was interested in it myself. So just tonight, um, this is what I was doing when I was late for the podcast um, was I was working on just making a really simple thing like in JS fiddle, uh, .NET, that little site where I just had a little container, like a container div that I called scroller. I gave the ID of scroller. And then um, I just wrote a tiny, tiny bit of JavaScript that would just iterate and build up a little array of numbers. And that was numbers from one to some cap, like, I don't know, let's say 5,000, right? And that's not really that big. It's a simple array with just a bunch of numbers in it up to, you know, one through 5,000. And then what I did was just iterate over that and build a div for each one of those and append that div into the, uh, into that base div, that scroller div. So pretty simple, right? You just have this scroller div and inside of it, it has a bunch, it has, you know, if I said I'm going to make 5,000 of them, it would have 5,000 divs inside it that were very simple and just had a class name of row. And then the only thing that was inside that div was just that string, which is one, two, three, four for each, you know, each one. Right. So this is very simple markup. This is not, you know, complex stuff. And in, I actually tried two different systems as little as 5,000. It would hang Chrome completely when I tried to run it. 
Um, wow, that doesn't sound like a lot of data either. No, it's really not. Now, part of that might have been, I don't know if I was breaking backends, if they have to do, like they do the rendering on the on the server side or something. I don't even know how these things work, but I, I you know, maybe they have some backend stuff that does it and then spits it out or something like that. Maybe I was breaking that. My experience, like on Spaz, uh, even on the desktop stuff, which the desktop things have way more memory and way faster CPUs to deal with, that I had a a and, and but the you know the each of those entries in a timeline on Spaz or something like that has a it, they're much more complex than that. I mean, there's they're each one of those like rows has a bunch of markup in it, right? Um. I had to cap the timelines at like 300 entries, I think. Or it would start significantly slowing down. This was on the desktop, right? Which has, like I said, a lot, lot, lot more stuff to work with. Um, on mobile, it was really bad. Um, that was just a complete disaster if you tried to render more than like 100. Um, really, really, really bad. Um, so, yeah. so it makes me wonder, is the problem really that there's an expectation now of infinite scroll? Well, I guess, but... I mean, look, know, I mean, look at the yeah. conversions <laughs> that you're going through just to try to get it to work with uh, what I would even call a pretty small data set. So yeah, is, is this is just an issue of perhaps the available implementations aren't up to snuff that maybe someone hasn't figured out the correct pattern or technique to handle um, these sort of things? Or is it just simply that it's that the browsers can't handle it? Um, That the limitations of the DOM and the browser engine, uh, you know, speaking to the DOM and trying to uh, fill the data up uh, faster than you can... Uh, faster, not faster, but but fast enough to create the illusion of smoothness. Right. So what's interesting is that, particularly on mobile, um, if you talk to iOS devs who have to deal with this, they'll tell you, although nobody appreciates this, is that they have to really, really work to make scrolling uh, be smooth on even on iOS, which is supposedly known for being you know super performant and and you know everything works great and stuff. Um, but I you know also getting like test builds of stuff that we've worked on at Fictive Kin, like getting test iOS stuff. I know that it is actually really hard to do that. You really have to optimize your stuff, and you have to do some of the same kinds of things that you solve this problem in web browsers with. It just tends to be that. Uh, you know, it's faster to do the drawing. Um, like the, the Dom has more overhead, I, I think. Um, I'm not an expert on this, but the Dom has more ever overhead, I believe than doing the drawing, like in compiled code and stuff like that. But, but browsers are still extremely fast, right? Um, they've been optimized dramatically. It, I think the, I think the real issue is that, um, is that there aren't a lot of, there isn't a good understanding of how to do this in a performant way inside browsers. Um, on mobile, on iOS, they do a lot of the same kinds of things where you're never going to, like, say if you've got a, a list of, like, 500 things, you would never actually render out 500 of those and draw them and just just as you're scrolling, you're only showing what's in the viewport, but the all the other stuff actually exists. Um, you would never ever do that, right? 
what you would do is um, you would only render a small subset of them, just like slightly larger than what the viewport is. And then you just dynamically, you either like reuse cells or you, you do some way to keep yourself from, you know, some techniques to keep yourself from having to uh, draw all those things. And then the second thing is you have to simplify a lot of what you draw. So your structures need to be, you know, like in the DOM, the more complex, the more tags you have, each one of those tags gets converted into some kind of node or something like that, right? Right. So the more tags that you have, uh, the harder it gets. So if you are if you have a tendency to be like, I'm going to wrap this stuff and, and have uh, like... Uh, you know, four or five tags when theoretically, if you just stripped it down to like one tag and had a string of text inside of it, um, that's going to be a lot more performant, right? Because you're stripping out a lot, you're a bunch of stuff that it has to worry about. Um, so my impression is that there are people who have, have done a lot of work to solve these kinds of problems. Um, but it's not really, like I said, it's not really well known and it's not like widely understood as, yes, you actually have to really work at this and you can't just say, I'm just going to throw infinite scrolling on it and just, you know, hope that it works forever. I mean, eventually you will just run out of it. Um, so the techniques that on the DOM that have to work the way they work is they do something called um, deferred rendering, right? where basically like at start it will render a subset of a small subset of your data and that's effectively just a little bit longer than the viewport that it, that is surrounding it and then the idea is that as elements get scrolled into view which you can determine programmatically with javascript you can say, okay, well, what's the position of this element? And does that position, would that indicate that it is, you know, would be visible at this point or not inside this viewport element? So you detect and see if it's, if it's um, visible. And if it's like, say, the last thing on your lit, the last, you know, DOM element in there, um, okay, now I need to render like a set of 10 more things and append that then to the list. So, and at the same time, um, you need to chop stuff off the top too. So there has to be like some kind of max where it's like you scroll down and, um, it'll put things on the bottom and it'll chop things off the top. So you never have more than, let's say 50 items or something like that. Well, I mean, that it's totally just, it's, makes sense. A sliding right. window to display. Um, that's the you idea. Is you... So, so, so what would happen? Would you then have a map, like a, uh, a master list somewhere lurking around in the background and you just keep taking slices of that for display yeah. purposes. Like how do, yeah, how would that, that work? Is that typically so, a technique that people try to do load as much as of what they have as you can in the background. And then you yeah. just start shifting a window into that list and, and taking a slice of that out to show people stuff. Yeah, that's the idea. I mean, there's, there are upper limits for how much data you can load, but you can load a, yeah. a, a much, much larger data structure into JavaScript than the DOM can be. So if you, you know, uh, you can load, you can load something with like a hundred thousand, an array with like a hundred thousand rows of data in it and just render like 20 at a time. Right. Um, and what you find is that is that becomes, that's the only way as far as I can tell, (laughs) and you know, smarter people can correct me on it, but that is, that is how you get performance um, and get smooth scrolling on really large data sets like that. 
Now, there are some issues, and um, I, I'm one of the reasons I'm, I want to try to implement one myself is not really for the sake of making a better one, um, but to make sure that I understand this stuff better. Um, there's an idea of what they call virtual scrolling, where you get into a problem where does the scroll bar properly represent, like, does it does it appear as if the list is really long when it when in actuality there's only like say 15 rows being rendered at any time or whatever 20 rows rendered at any time does it appear as long as it should be so if you can determine how tall each one of those elements the row elements should be you can determine what the the length of the entire thing would be right. if you rendered right. and it, then give right? The appearance of the yeah. correct position within the list when when you're looking at the scroll bar, where the little right. indicator is. Uh, you know, like if you have a scroll bar and says you are here, that's, that's what you're talking right. about. Trying to find a way to accurately yeah. estimate so that's, that. Right. So the idea, I think, the idea of what they do is to make that work with just the native scroll bar stuff. Is they actually render like a single element that would be that tall. You know, just set the height and you know to be the the correct dimensions of how tall the list would be if you actually rendered the whole thing. Right, and then um, you're scrolling that, but you're the but the only thing that you're actually showing in the viewport is the rendered is the piece that's actually rendered. And I think so. I think what you might do is you might tie, you might actually have those in those elements sort of work independently. But so you're actually scrolling this big piece, but it it's sort of moving. It's moving this other thing, which is doing the rendering like above it, um, where you're actually rendering in and out the rows. Oh, okay. Now I I that's some of that's speculative because I I've tr- I tried doing this before. I tried writing stuff with Spaz, and I tried pulling in outside components uh, for some stuff. And it's a hard problem to it's like. It's a problem you can solve up to a certain point. And then it became it becomes really problematic. And I remember the thing that got really problematic was on desktop stuff where you expect there to be a scroll bar. Although, of course, in OSX now, they've got a nice disappearing scroll bar. But um, on desktop stuff where you expect there to be a scroll bar, the fact that the heights um, have to be consistent is really problematic if your data doesn't do that, right? Um, and like on SPAS, it wasn't. Because I mean, you, I didn't want to make all the messages like the maximum, like the maximum height they could be, like you know, I don't know, two hundred pixels or something. You know, if somebody really types out something long and it like wraps a bunch or something, well, that could be a really big piece, right? Um, and then, uh, but I didn't want to make everything that long, right? So that really makes that hard. And I ended up just throwing it at. Like I tried some stuff and ended up, and this just doesn't work, right? Um, so the concept works, but getting the details on it is harder. Um, there's some components out there that I've come across, and I've, I've I sort of I named some of them. Um, there's a, but a, the problem that I've run into is that a lot of them are really, they're very complex, and they're designed to be sort of like drop-in things where, uh, well, you just take this and and toss your stuff in there and then it will magically make a table appear that has millions of rows in it, right? Or something like that. Um, But one is called Slick Grid and that's really like a drop-in like table thing, like a a fancy table system where a table component. Um, But it it is really, really fast. Um, But 
if you don't have something that's necessarily tabular data, um, that doesn't maybe doesn't work as well for you, or it's just you know if the way that it works doesn't work well for you, or if you had a lighter weight thing like with Spaz, I had something where I didn't want to bring in a gigantic component um, and try to force fit all the stuff that I had done into it, and I, I actually experimented with it and it did not go very well. Um, now. What they what they did like on WebOS, which I didn't do initially, and I realized what a terrible idea it was, was that in the WebOS JavaScript frameworks they had, so they had these um, list scrollers that did this stuff for you, where you could take, say, here's my array of data, and here's a template that will render for each, you know, that that you use uh, for each row, and just that and plug in that component and then that will give you the scroller and render stuff out for you. Um, it was really it, but it worked right. Um, you could tweak it. And sometimes, you know, you have to tweak the numbers to say, well, somebody might be able to scroll really fast and they'll end up like, like getting ahead of your rendering stuff or, you know, so you have to give yourself like padding at the top and bottom and junk. And so there's a lot, there's things to tweak out on that, but that's what they did both on the original WebOS framework, uh, which for some reason I can't think of right. Mojo. And then with the Enyo framework, which they went ahead and open sourced and is you can use for applications still. It's a really nice framework. They have a same kind of component in that. Um, I'm trying to look through here and find uh, some of the other things I had. There's one that the guys at Airbnb developed called Infinity JS, um, which basically does the same kind of thing. It's designed to not have to work with like tabular data or like you know fixed row heights, um, and so that uh, that is interesting. But you know that might be, and it looks a little lighter weight. Um, so that's a thing, right? Um, and there was something I saw for Ember, uh, the Ember framework um, that uh, one of the guys at work sent to me uh, that looked interesting too, but it looks like it's designed to work with Ember. So if you aren't using Ember, it looks like it would be hard to extract that. Also, it was CoffeeScripts, which meant that I didn't really understand it. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> yeah, but the uh sorry. So yeah, so I think the thing is that people just don't they don't realize that this is kind of a potential issue and uh that and I think in general, I think particularly because of the kind of websites that we've built in, in over, you know, 10-15 years and also the the environment that they existed in, which is typically desktop browsing. Um there's like very little um there's very well let me say the knowledge of how to of, of making really performant stuff in the dom um is not very widespread and there are people who do understand it and who are really good at it um but uh i would not say that that's that's ever become even today has become like a, a thing that people really like feel like they have to understand and educate everybody about and stuff like that. Um, but that, you know, that's, uh, I think that, that, that's why a, a lot of times it's not because the web browser sucks or something like that. It's because it's just, 
you know, they're the the uh, application developers, the web site developers, didn't think about that because they just figured it didn't really matter. Um, you know, Facebook on a desktop browser had the same problems that Facebook as the HTML5, you know, embedded web view app does on mobile. It's just that the the caps are so much higher. Um, you have so much more room in a desktop browser that it seems like it doesn't really matter. But that's why, like, if I don't know if you saw the guys at Sentia, um, who obviously have a very vested interest in making sure HTML is a is a is an application platform, yep. an effective one. Yeah, I saw those. I um, saw the videos where they demoed yep. the HTML five version of the Facebook app that they right. created, and I was actually pretty impressed. Right. But I think what's interesting is that they had to build a component that didn't already exist in their framework that did exactly what I'm talking about, yeah. which does, which dynamically rendered the items for people. But like I said, that's exactly what all these native, you know, native UI folks do too. They don't render out 5,000 pieces and, and just have that sitting in there. Um, they, you know, that's not how they do that. But a lot of times those, that sort of native UI kit stuff will tend to, be it make it a little bit easier for you to do that or it may just do it for you automatically the way that like the you know in the uh in the web os you know javascript stuff it would just you had a component and it would do that for you now that you'd run into limitations sometimes and it wasn't a be all end all if you still had really complex stuff or you tried to put like images in your rows or stuff like that that slow that can still slow stuff down a bunch too even if you have a much smaller number of them but um it it definitely you know it makes stuff a lot better i i shipped i remember shipping spaz on the original version of spaz that shipped for web os that shipped on launch day for the palm pre um i never got a device to test it on and the so what we what I did test it on was a VM that was running in um, in VirtualBox. Okay, and so it was compiled for x86. So it ran very nicely in that VM. Um, and but when I when I did it in uh, and I still had to do things like cap the number of items and stuff like that. Right, so it was like 150 or something like that, and it would stop. You couldn't scroll back any farther in Twitter, you know, right? The farther than that, right? Um, but uh, on the device itself, I saw videos uh, you know, on launch day. Oh my god, it was so slow. Well, that sucks. It was, and it was because I had built stuff with. In a lot of cases, I'd build stuff and not use the the Mojo framework components for it because I uh, wasn't really comfortable with them, and uh, I decided I was going to do so, like roll stuff with jQuery and some smarts and stuff like that. That's how I built the desktop app, right? Right. Uh, yeah, that didn't work out so hot, um, and I, I learned a, a little bit of a hard lesson about like going in there and, and understanding that. But uh, but mobile particularly is a really different situation, and you are so capped in terms of uh, performance and and CPU speed and RAM uh, that it's it, you just if if you want to use HTML as an application platform. And you have these kinds of situations where you have a data and it's it's realistically not capped. I mean, you might have to cap it to like 
know, let's say you might load up to 50,000 items or something. You just have to learn how to do that. It, you know, like your standard way of just appending crap into the DOM and not worrying about it just doesn't work. And you just have to do that. Um, there's just not another... So, so you could do it. It's just you have to work at it. And the knowledge of how to make that work is not particularly widespread. It's not well known amongst... Uh, uh, front-end engineers, in my experience. You know, as usual, and, with any kind of cool technology, making stuff that looks simple is always really difficult. I mean, this, yeah. is, this is a perfect example. It's some, something that non-technical people would look at and say, I don't understand why this is hard. Why can't I scroll through my list of Facebook posts? Why does the yeah. why does my uh, my iPhone always slow down when I do it? They don't really, they don't understand the limitations of the of the sandbox that you're being forced to run your application in right and you know the expectation is that well um users will and it may be the case that most users won't they're not going to scroll back through 500 things or maybe you know on twitter most people follow a very small like less than 100 people so for but you're going to get people who could follow 40,000 people and they're going to get so much data that you know 200 items is only like 5 minutes for them right so you're you have these cases where people can scroll through stuff and 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 really kick it up and if you don't i i, I even seen like on Tumblr if you go down like say 10 pages through Tumblr if you turn on their infinite scroll stuff and you don't you disable their pagination tell to no, no, don't do that. Just keep scrolling dynamically, load stuff on there. After about ten pages, you know, Tumblr's mostly pictures. It, it'll just start really slowing down. Your whole browser's just like, you know, uh, it can't handle that stuff. Um, I'm afraid to look at like what the how much memory it's using. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just uh, real DOM performance is just something that is not is just ignored for the most part, and. Um, I, I, the thing that I really wish for is that there was a lot more stuff out there in terms of like really simple components that said, okay, take this and pop that in here and, and, and this'll, you know, do stuff for you. This'll take a, you know, a simple viewport and here's, you know, here's an array of data and here's a template and plug it in. It will do this for you. And, uh, or the knowledge of like how to, the algorithms, how to build that stuff. This is how you do that, right? You hide or show based on this stuff or things like that. Um, there's just not a lot of, there's not a lot of stuff like that out there. Um, maybe the reality is that the Dom will never be able to handle doing things well like that. Maybe that's, yeah. maybe that's the reality. Because like maybe, any system, yeah, I, I wonder if we're getting close to the point where we've um, beaten on the DOM and the whole kind of representing a page inside a browser uh, paradigm that we're getting close to the limits of what we're going to be able to do with it. I think that's a possibility, but my suspicion is that this is actually, it's just sort of like a dirt, I don't know, a dirty secret. It's just not really acknowledged but it is the case that you have to do this everywhere and that when you draw when you you have stuff and you ha- draw it onto the, the screen um that that some things are just slow and you can't do it that way uh but so the way to solve that is to keep things performant is that you have to have components that allow developers to easily avoid that so they don't have to write that stuff from scratch um and that's going to allow way more people to 
develop performance stuff. Um, probably the thing that I thought was that looks best so far in terms of a plugin thing is probably this uh, Infinity JS thing um, because it looks like it has it. It does require jQuery, but it doesn't have any other um, requirements. Um, there, but, uh, so I think that's the thing I'm probably going to look at, uh, in terms of doing that kind of stuff too, like actually using it, but I still want to try to write it and see if I can understand that or or look at their source and and try to figure out, okay, this is how this works. And this is why it's doing it that way, because it's, I think it's an interesting problem and, and one that we run into on on our our products too i mean gimme bar has the same kind of issue where if you keep scrolling down scrolling down scrolling down eventually it will slow down in a desktop browser even um and that's just the way that is so uh the there's just you can't i mean if you no matter what if you have an uncapped amount of you know data it will eventually exceed the reasonable boundaries of your of your uh of your system um so you have to find some other way of dealing with that, right? Well, I think, Ed, you've taught me more than I ever thought I would learn about virtual scrolling and uh, providing windows into large lists of data. Um, it has been – it's it's one of these things where as a non-JavaScript dev, I can kind of look at it and say, yep, I kind of understand what's going on here. And it's like at that point, it's where – it seems like 95% of the pieces are there already. It's just that somebody needs to figure out that other 5%. Um, yeah, to, I think, to, make, I think it, to figure out, like I said, it's really, I really think it's one of these things where if you want to use some overused terms, someone will figure out the pattern for dealing with showing a window, uh, a specifically sized window to a, a huge long list of right. things and that someone figures out a way um, to get the DOM to behave properly so that it actually is relatively smooth and, and, and people can scroll back and forth on this list. I, I, I agree right. that probably the big thing, too, is if you're also trying to bring in data in real time and uh, you're appending to the list uh, at the same time that you're moving your window around. Anyway, yeah. I can see from the time that we've reached our usual almost 90 minutes worth of rambling. And it was good to have a chance just for the two of us to... Um, shoot the shit and absolutely uh, this was, was a lot good, of fun bro. i enjoy these yes. talks that we have i tell you Definitely. people really the key is it's like in a good marriage too you spend as much time talking to your significant you spend as the least amount of time talking to your significant other as possible so that when you are together you have interesting things to say that is absolutely the case so as always thank you very much to everybody who has joined us here this has been episode number 25 of development how we've made it to 25 25 uh, almost 25 in one calendar year which means every other week ed and i stared at a blank pirate pad to figure out exactly what we're going to talk about so <laughs> thanks to our awesome sponsors engine yard trailblazers of platform as a service if you're looking to run php apps in a platform as a service environment please check them out via their awesome product orchestra.io also thanks so much to paul reinheimer and the awesome folks at the wonder network for providing us with bandwidth for uh, the live stream so that people in IRC can follow us along. Um, yes, I did compare Funkatron to my wife. Um, That's nice. Because he got mad that I cheated on him with PHP Town Hall the other day. <laughs> Uh, so finally, uh, you can find us always on iTunes. If you listen to us on iTunes, please, please, please go and rate the show. Let us know what you think. 
You can also find us online at uh, devhell.info. Every single one of our 24 episodes that we have released to the public can be found there. Uh, also, you can find us on Twitter, dev underscore hell. You can find me, uh, Chris Harchis, as Grumpy Programmer, Grumpy Without the U. You can find Ed as Funkatron with the U. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Everybody, have a happy holiday season, and we'll probably talk to you guys next in the new year. Good night, so, Internet. Good night, everybody. I said that too soon. That's all right, bro. Good night, Internet. All right, bye.